Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is the sacrament of Holy Communion, the table of the Lord at which all of his faithful are gathered together in fellowship, or perhaps the table of the Lord at which all of his faithful refuse to fellowship with one another because they disagree about what exactly is going on. So today we're going to be walking through a whole range of issues related to Holy Communion in no particular order. But I think the place to start, Dad, is simply with where it comes from. Tell us, Dad, where does the sacrament of Holy Communion come from? (laughs) Well, there's been a great deal of discussion of that in the literature. And uh, we know from the uh, gospel accounts that Jesus had festive meals. with his disciples, but also with the wider circle of people around him. There are many stories of meal hospitality from the life of Jesus. And even in these stories from the life of Jesus, like in the feeding of the 5,000 or 4,000 in the wilderness, there's two versions of that story. There's actions that are strikingly reminiscent of the uh, Lord's Supper. He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and distributed it and things like that. And then there's the story of the risen Christ at the end of Luke when he walks incognito with the two disciples on the road from Emmaus. Um, And then they recognize him in the act of breaking the bread. And then he vanishes from their sight. So All of this is in the background here, these various ways in which meal hospitality was a concrete human uh, ritual. It's ritual already. I mean, eating meals together in fellowship is ritualistic behavior, uh, even if we don't recognize it as such. But these rituals of Jesus uh, uh, sharing meals with others uh, to celebrate the uh, inbreaking of the God of grace into a world with very little grace in it. All these memories are kind of gathered up and crystallized, culminated in the uh, so-called words of institution, which I'll read now from Paul's version in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 10, I think it is. Chapter 11, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Paul has been criticizing the, uh, the uh, Corinthians, and we'll get into some of that, what the context is and what the criticisms are. But first, let's hear these words that are so familiar to us uh, who hear them in church Sunday after Sunday. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul concludes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul's uh, recording of this so-called words of institution is the earliest literary 
um, record of it because we know the gospel accounts of it uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, come from a generation later, literarily speaking. Of course, the traditions all go back to the time of Jesus. I think what's striking to me is how how amazingly similar the accounts are in Paul and in the, the three synoptics. Of course, Matthew and Luke are depending on Mark and they, they have their own slight embellishments, but the wording is so close. We've speculated here before of a deep connection between Paul and Mark at some uh, pre-literary level, and this seems to be one too, and also a further testimony that celebrating this supper, we'll, we'll get into what we should call it in, in a bit, celebrating the supper happened so early on and was just absolutely indisputed, just like Christian baptism. There's there's no record within the, the scripture of there being an argument about whether you should do it or how important it was. It has always been there. Yes, I think that's right. And I think a lot of liturgical scholars have pointed out that uh, any religious community, I mean, this is kind of a generalization from religious studies, but any uh, coherent community that's going to endure through time consistently has to have both a rite of initiation by which new people are incorporated into the community, and it has to have a ritual of nurture or sustenance by which uh, people are sustained in their membership in that community. And baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, correspond respectively to those kinds of uh, social needs uh, for the integrity through time of the community of faith. I suppose that's true. I find that a pretty underwhelming argument, I have to say. You'll find any number <laughs> of exceptions to the rule. And it just it sort of seems to me not far off from endless arguments about what a sacrament is as such, and then arguing about how to fit two or three or five or seven into them. It seems like, a, I don't know, it seems like it's an ex post facto argument, not a, a helpful like lead-in like that helps us discover, oh, and this is what baptism and communion is. But that's just my... Well, I know. You've, you've expressed your frustration with liturgical scholarship more than once on our podcast, Sarah. <laughs> well, uh, and probably more in, in personal conversation than on our podcast. I would just like to say liturgical scholars agree mightily among themselves, too, so it's not just, uh, not just me. Okay. Uh, I think uh, let's, uh, let's agree that the observation is pretty lame, but nevertheless, even a lame <laughs> observation, if it's a fact— uh, is helpful. Okay. The Christian community needs a right of initiation, and it needs a right of uh, nurture. And how about it has a right of initiation and it has a right of nurture, and we'll go from there. All right. Let's just begin with the fact: there is baptism, and there is the Lord's Supper. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then let's press on to theologically why these are wonderful gifts. Okay, that's very good. So since you started with the words of institution, which is, is obviously the place to start, um, let, let's just spend a little more time unpacking them. So um, one is that only Matthew gives a um, an indisputable reason for why you're doing this. Namely, he identifies that this cup is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's not present in Mark, Luke, or Paul. Do you have any thoughts on that in particular? The Gospel of Matthew is often making those kinds of uh, explications in its rendering of the tradition. 
to say that this is my body that is for you or is given for you is, of course, uh, a kind of a bare and naked statement, but it's nevertheless mighty uh, meaningful. Uh, he is identifying the loaf with his own body, and he's identifying his body as the gift he is giving for those assembled to eat and drink from this loaf. Those are remarkable statements, uh, remarkable statements that he can identify himself with the loaf and that he can, and the reason for this identification is that it is for, to the benefit, for the sake of the others who will partake of it. Matthew, uh, I think, as is his tendency, likes to make little expansions that explicate the meaning of the benefit or the meaning of the, uh, the the other famous example is uh, the probably what Jesus said in the Beatitude was blessed are the poor, right? That's how Luke has it. Right. And but Matthew says blessed are the poor in spirit. The little addition of the word in spirit is a is an um, expository comment to understand why it is, or what in what respect the poverty is blessed. If you are a beggar before God, you will be filled with blessing. If you have nothing in yourself to boast about, you will be exalted. If you are emptied of uh, pride and self-regard, you will be filled with God's love and mercy forever. Yeah, and I think you can really see that throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew. That that rings true to me. Right. But the original words were probably very simply. The two senses of signif- significance were for the, the body is for you, and the cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So there are two soteriological ideas here, ideas of the saving significance of the death of Jesus, that his death is a beneficial death for the sake of others, and that it is the death which seals a new covenant between God and and his people. Okay, well, let's go from there to to two more issues. It's funny, I keep thinking of more things we have to talk about. I don't think there's any way we're going to cover everything in this episode. But so it's precisely this linking that Matthew does of of making the cup about the forgiveness of sins, which um, raises another translation issue. So um, I don't know how widespread this is ecumenically, but Lutherans at least... Uh, from the time of the LBW, the Lutheran Book of Worship in 1978, will recall hearing in the words of his institution, um, uh, this is my blood shed for you and for all people. And I got curious about this because the Greek definitely doesn't say for all people. It says for many. And so when I was editor of Lutheran Forum, I asked um, Dennis DeMauro, uh, one of my frequent contributors, if he would be interested in trying to figure out what was going on there. And it seems that at the time of the, in the late 70s, when the book was being put together, there was an, an argument mounted that um, for many was a Semitism behind the Greek that really meant for everybody. It was like, I don't know, I guess you'd call it a, sort, a form of understatement, but that it's, its meaning was 
was fully extensive. And um, but the reason why in particular there was a concern to transfer it to for all people is because of the question of is the Lord's Supper itself, especially the cup, supposed to be the figure or sign of the death of Christ itself? And so whether the Lord's Supper is the same as what Lutherans would call universal atonement, though not necessarily universal salvation or universal um, you know, drawing of everybody into the church or the kingdom or whatever. And so I guess the idea was that the Lord's Supper and the universal atonement were so tightly linked that to say for many or to suggest it wasn't for all people was to suggest limited atonement, which Lutherans have not taught. And his argument, as he looked through it, he said it just, it was not a good translation of the Greek. There does not seem to be any widespread scholarly agreement that that is in fact what for many meant and that there seems to be something different going on in the supper than in the universal atonement offered up by Christ's death. Yeah, that might be true. Uh, the, these are we would have to spend some time looking at that exegetically, but I remind you that the same Semitism occurs in Mark ten forty five, For the Son of Man came not to be served like a king, but to serve like a slave, and to give like a priest his life like an offering or a sacrifice as a ransom for many. Uh, and the, the same issue I think that is involved here is is this a Semitism in which it's a merely rhetorical contrast between for few and for many, which then can be conceptualized as uh, for uh, none or for some and for all. Uh, so I don't, I don't know how, I don't think we can settle that, that issue uh, between us right now, though I'm inclined to think because of the way in which the uh, doctrine of limited atonement has had such a, a, del a deleterious effect on the life of the church. Um, the LBW erred in the right direction, if it erred at all. Right. Well, I think that then would logically say, though, we'd have to ask the question, if the Lord's Supper is for all, or the what was poured out in the cup is for all, does that mean that the, the table is open to all, regardless of their baptism or various other impediments? So I think, that, I think that maybe that has primed the pump for that particular direction in uh, Eucharistic practice. Well, look, at, I know this, you're going to irritate you again with another sociological observation from the liturgical <laughs> scholars here. But all right. when you're invited into someone's house for a meal, don't you come properly dressed, properly prepared? And if your hands are dirty, don't you wash before you eat? I mean, yes, of course yeah, it's an invitation. Yeah, people make that argument for purgatory. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, maybe there's some truth to it, too. I don't know. Oh, but, uh, Dad. Yeah. Listeners, you are my witnesses. What is happening to my father here? Well, no, I just I don't it, I... like these kind of things because because I also have to take a bath more than once in my life. I don't know about you, but once at the beginning of time does not do it for me. And I have to eat yes. more than once a week. So I, I just well, I find these non starters personally. Well, the nevertheless, the the uh, practice of confession and forgiveness, the brief order for confession and forgiveness that prefaces most of our Eucharistic services as a rule, uh, is that renewal of baptism by which one, uh, we pray that we, 
cleanse our, the thoughts of our hearts that we may worthily love you and magnify you or whatever that text says, something along those lines. Right, right, yeah. And, and so that's, that's the circumcision of the heart. That's the washing of the hands. That's the recalling of baptism. Uh, so that one may indeed worthily uh, partake in the Lord's Supper. Paul warns emphatically against unworthy reception of the Lord's Supper. And we can talk about that, but I, I would like to shift a little bit. I think it helps in 1 Corinthians to uh, look at the context in which Paul discusses uh, abuses at the Lord's Supper and how one is to partake of the Lord's Supper worthily. Okay, let's do that. And I, I, ju- I let me just add that um, it used to be that that um, corporate confession happened right before the Lord's Supper. I don't know why it was shifted to the beginning of the service again with the LBW, but you'll find if you go, I think generally to Episcopal and Catholic churches, their corporate confession is right before the Lord's Supper, not at the beginning of the service. Well, you know, I had a, I can tell an amusing story about that if you don't mind a little diversion here. No, um, not at all. When I was uh, teaching in Slovakia, it was at the time in which they were undergoing a revision of their hymnal, their agenda. And uh, uh, the scholar, liturgical scholar who was in charge of this revision, wanted to bring the Slovak liturgy into harmony with the Lutheran Book of Worship. And so he moved the confession of sin from immediately prior to the Lord's Supper reception to the beginning of the service. And the traditionalists there had an absolute fit about it. And I was trying to understand why, 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 why are you so upset about this? You're still having the confession and forgiveness. It's just being moved to the beginning of the service rather than immediately before the Lord's Supper. And I got into a long talk with one of the opponents of this change, and it finally came out. He said... You know, there's a long time between the beginning of the service and the reception of the Lord's Supper. What if I have a dirty or sinful thought in between? (laughs) Well, yeah, that is a serious problem, I guess. I certainly do. You're not living under grace and you're not practicing your baptism if you have those kinds of um, um, self-referential obstacles to communion. The whole point of communion is that you come as a baptized child of God who's hungry and thirsty for renewal in this way of life that you've undertaken with your baptism. It also completely omits the the fact that communion itself is the forgiveness of sins as well, that it isn't like you, you get it first and then you can come take the precious gift that you're otherwise unworthy for. But actually, like Matthew says, it is for the forgiveness of sins. That is also what happens in the Lord's Supper. So it's not a matter of clearing your slate so you can get it. Right. And, and you know, there you have the problem here of the separation of the benefits from the benefactor. Uh, the benefits... Yes, forgiveness of sin, of course. But the benefactor is Christ himself in his life, death, and resurrection for us. Um, And it's in the Lord's Supper, he comes as he truly is to represent himself for us and to renew us in the new covenant that he has made with us by the gift of himself and therefore also of all of his benefits. And I'm afraid that this kind of uh, 
focus purely on the forgiveness of sins loses from sight the uh, leading meaning of the Lord's Supper as communion with Christ. The loaf that we share, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? Um, That's why if you eat and drink unworthily, that personal presence of Christ can cease to be a blessing and become an affliction and a curse, Paul argues. We'll get to that later on. Right. So it's it's a, uh, a a species of turning the Christian faith into a transactional operation so that it's not actually about encounter with the living God, but it's about God and I have a problem and we'll find some middle term to settle the problem. So whether it's my corporate or private confession or my taking of the of the right of Holy Communion or something, but it, it can actually turn the gift of Christ into a buffer where you don't have to encounter Christ because, you know, you've done your part. He does his part. The transaction is enacted and then everyone's back, you know, uh, no, no credits, no debts. We're just clear. That's right. Yes. I'm, I'm merely trans, not the joyful exchange in which, in amazement, we think of Christ who gives all himself with all his blessings in exchange for our sinful selves and all our deficits. Wow, that's no ordinary quid pro quo. That's an amazing uh, exchange, uh, and so forth. And that, I think, is at the center of, 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 of the proper uh, uh, and holy celebration of the Lord's Supper. But let's, let's back up to 1 Corinthians, shall we, or not? Yes, yes, let's do that. All right, because in 1 Corinthians, the issue is eating food sacrificed to idols. We see that in chapter 8, where some of the uh, uh, spiritually superior Christians have the knowledge that idols have no real existence and that therefore food sacrificed to idols is really... just plain old food, and there's no should be no compunctions about eating this meat. Now you have to understand historically. In the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, the only access to meat was at the civic temples, the temples of the pagan gods. That's where the the transaction uh, in uh, butchering took place. People would bring the animals for sacrifices to the gods. They would be barbecued. I mean, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but what the temples really were were open open barbecues. And so the priests got their share of the meat for doing the ritual of the sacrifice, and then the offerers got their share, and then the rest was sold on the market. And that's how you had access to meat in the city. I bet the church in America would do better if it had a lot more barbecue and a lot less flimsy wafers and grape juice. <laughs> yeah, it would, be, it would be just like the ancient pagan t- temples. It would be very attractive. But here's Paul's issue. The spiritually superior ones in Corinth, knowing that the idols are f- fakes, they're not real, uh, are simply eating the meat uh, thoughtlessly in their sense of spiritual superiority. Uh, But they don't think of the food as they eat it as being offered to an idol. Uh, uh, But some of the weaker ones in faith, 
whom they are looking down on because they don't yet have this knowledge that idols aren't real. They still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Why? Because they're, they say, well, the, these good Christians are eating food offered to an idol. They must be strong enough to take it. And if they're eating it, I guess I can eat it too. So I'm going to eat food offered to an idol. But in fact, then they're violating their own conscience. And I think it's important to say that that eating the meat is can be perceived in that context as an act of worship, that you are willingly partaking in pagan worship when you eat that meat. Yes, that's exactly what Paul says. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your superior knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. And though you being strong, you wound the conscience of the weak and you sin against Christ. I think this little episode in 1 Corinthians 8 is really instructive for the context in which the Lord's Supper is being observed uh, in the early Christianity. All around them, everywhere, ubiquitous, is this market of meat in uh, temples of idols where the food has been sacrificed uh, uh, uh to the idol. That's in later on, Paul picks this up in chapter 10, and then he continues, flee from the worship of idols. Flee from the worship of idols. He had said back in chapter 8, no, there's no such real thing as an idol. There's only one God. But in fact, here on the earth, there are many gods and many lords and many idols. But for us, there's only one God, the Father, from whom all things come, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come. So Paul is, sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, but what he means, I think, is something very serious. Yes, perhaps, right, theoretically, there can only be one God. But that theoretical knowledge is not shared down here on the ground. Down here on the ground, there's many lords and many Christs and many prophets and many messiahs, and they're all making their claims on us, and they're all trying to enthrall us into sacrificing something of ourselves for them into this economy of exchange that you talked about, this transaction. And so Paul wants to pit the celebration observance of the Lord's Supper as something fundamentally different from food sacrifice to idols. Shall I go on? Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I was just thinking that this is still really a live issue in a lot of the world. Just for an example, here in Japan, there are frequent Shinto and Buddhist festivals, and they usually have food for sale. And, you know, there are parades that you can participate in and so forth. And so far, we have, you know, just watched and not not bought or consumed or paraded or anything. And we've asked people and there seems to be the whole range of opinions here from, you know, you absolutely must not partake to, um, you know, this is this is purely civic observance. It means nothing. And the people who are doing it don't believe it either. So don't worry about it. Right. Just like Corinth, just like the situation. Just in like Corinth. Corinth. Yeah. Yeah. 
But now here in chapter 10, Paul draws a sharp line and it helps us understand why the Lord's Supper is uh, uh, incompatible with uh, participation in the pagan sacrificial rites. He says, flee from the worship of idols. Is the cup a blessing that we bless? Is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, not a sharing of, in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Then he, Now he writes, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That the food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything real? No. I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, is Paul therefore demonizing the, the pagan religions? If he is, he's simply repeating what he learned from the book of Deuteronomy, which already teaches that participation in the rituals of the pagan gods is a captivation by demons. It does show that for Paul, this is the stakes are tremendously high. That's right. Now, again, in the age of religious pluralism and not wanting to foment Christian attitudes of superiority to other religions or contempt of them, or uh, in the popular sense of the word, demonizing other religions. Let's try to press through the rhetoric to see why Paul thinks the Lord's Supper is qualitatively different from the sacrifices of the idols. In chapter 11, okay, in chapter 11, Paul talks about when the Corinthians come together as a church. I have problems with you because I see divisions. Uh, and in fact, when you come together in these divisions, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. And one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. So the Lord's Supper, Paul is saying, has, instead of transforming the Corinthians into the one body of Christ, has instead become assimilated to the pre-existing sacrificial practice. I like Aphrodite's, no, I like Hermes. I like Apollo, no, I like Zeus. I go to the temple of the idol that turns me on and I make a sacrifice to the God who does the job for me. And so each one in a polytheistic way factionalizes into that God that they can get the best deal out of that's going to serve their interests. That is not what it means to come together, he says, as the ecclesia, as the church. What? Exclamation point. Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the ecclesia of God and humiliate those who have nothing? That's a very pregnant and powerful statement. You can eat 
supper at home. The supper you eat at home is not the Lord's Supper. When you come together as the church, you leave behind your parochial and private interests. You come together as the uh, those baptized into Christ in whom there's neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, no male and female. You come together as one, as the one body of Christ. And if you're not coming together that way, you're going to turn the Lord's Supper into your own smorgasbord. And it's going to be a disaster because in the process, you show contempt for the new creation of God that is manifest in the ecclesia, in this new order of unity in Christ, neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male or female. And in the process, and this is really what upsets Paul a lot, you humiliate the poor, those who have nothing. Yeah, that's all I was going to say, that you humiliate the poor because the class divisions, there's neither slave nor free, has, have, been, have reasserted themselves in the life of the, of the church, of the congregation, so that the wealthy can have a ni- nice meal, but the poor go hungry watching them eat. And historically, there have been times where uh, the communing of men and women has been done separate, too. What I think is really poignant about this for our time, uh, and to the point, is that we tend to see baptism now as some kind of partisan bid and that to require it before communion is to impose some kind of um, extrinsic condition. But I think Paul's line of logic is precisely in getting baptized, you are laying, laying down all partisanships on the horizontal plane so that you have no choice but to be affiliated with all other sinners because you have only one Lord Jesus Christ who was, you know, the crucified and risen one. And so it's precisely in baptism that you are refusing any more to compete against your fellows. And that's why it's important. It's it, the meaning of the supper actually is the, you know, the the gathering, the, the fellowship of the baptized who have had to leave at the door with their baptism, the fact that they are rich or poor or male or female or Jew or Greek or any other affiliative group. Very well said, Sarah. I think that's exactly right. When you come together as the church, and I think it's the loss of this consciousness of the ecclesia, the assembly called out by the gospel, as the as uh, what theologians call the eschatological community of God. It's the loss of this consciousness. And what do desperate clergy do who have actually lost this consciousness? They try to market the Lord's Supper as a little taste of grace. And who am I to stand in the way of giving a little taste of grace to whoever wants to receive it? And in fact, I'm going to, I'm going to dress up this uh, marketing of the Lord's Supper as radical hospitality. I'm going to suspend the requirement of baptism uh, or church membership or denominational affiliation or confessional identity. It's just radical inclusion. Just come one, come all. Well, you know, that's grace so cheap, I dare say, that you can't give it away. People who are trying to market the Lord's Supper that way are not going to get very far with it. 
Well, I don't, it doesn't really matter even if they do get far with that. I would say actually the problem is that they've misunderstood which sacrament they should be fixating on. You want the radical inclusion sacrament, it's called baptism. That That is right. what baptism is. It's not the Lord's Supper, but baptism that is claiming everyone in. I, I would add to that. I mean, I think we're obviously speaking very much to a U.S. context here where there are, of course, because of, of immigration, which is more innocence and then um, real definite uh, race and class issues, which are not, there are ways in which congregations are definitely striated along lines that do not reflect what Paul sings with such joy in Galatians 3.28. But it seems then that a lot of the uh, practical strategies actually are doubling down on the group identity by trying to, you know, with a, a marketer's focus, try to target, okay, this is this missing group, and this is that missing group, and this kind of group, and we're going to work on them, and we're going to make this group over here less desirable because we already have too many old German people or whatever it is. And um, as a, a friend of mine in mission has said, you get any group of human beings together, there is already so much diversity and so much potential for conflict. You know, of course, don't participate in the larger social patterns of exclusion to whatever extent you can, but it's not like you really have to look far to find people who are radically separated on all these, you know, uh, ethnic and sex and economic lines that have, and nowadays I'd say ideological lines, that can be and need to be brought together in the context of a congregation, you will already have your hands full with that. I think that's exactly right. And that's why Paul um, exhorts the Corinthians as he concludes this uh, section of 1 Corinthians 11, examine yourselves. Only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. Well, uh, that is my one-verse refutation of so-called radical hospitality. Self-examination, that is the practice of baptism, in which I recognize that my body is not my own, that I've been bought with a price, that I am now a member of the body of Christ, is the uh, sine qua non of participation in a worthy manner in the Supper of the Lord. Well, I think your two problems right there, Dad, popularly, not not from my perspective, but that you think, first of all, condemnation is possible and that you have dared to use the word worthy because obviously grace and worthiness can have no fellowship with each other. Grace makes us worthy. So give it away as cheaply as you can. I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying this is the argument. Yeah, I, I know the argument. And um, this is, this, what this does is it turns grace into an idea. Grace is simply the idea of radical inclusiveness, no strings attached, no judgment, no examination. Uh, we simply accept you just the way you are. And this is an idea that has nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus Christ crucified and risen. It is an idol, an idea that is substituting for the actual encounter with Jesus Christ in his own body and blood as that is offered for us and as the new covenant in which we are bound together in him and through him to one another. It's an, it's, it's, um, 
Well, I think I've made my point here. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a it's a fake boundary line drawn around every single person on the planet and then said, ta-da, we have open borders and we're all a big happy UN and there's no more conflict. It's just declaring an end to conflicts that obviously have not in any serious way ended. But I think we can, I, I think let, let's, let's grant the benefit of the doubt here uh, in, in two directions. One thing would be to say is if Christian people who are baptized and attending church are not also disciplined in this self-examination and are striving to conform their lives to Christ. And I'm not making any overblown claims about how sanctified they'll get or anything. But unless Christian people are exhorted to do that, then honestly, you don't have any ground to stand on to say that just this random pagan who happens not to have ever been baptized doesn't get the benefits that they get. So I think there's a fair critique on that side. On the other side, I can also see the concern about hyper-policing the Lord's table. I, I've seen, and I'm sure you have seen, some rather gross ways of making sure the unworthy, which usually means not correctly conf confessionally affiliated, can't get anywhere near that table. And that's also repulsive. I'm, I've known, as I'm sure you have, uh, the random pagan who wanders in off the street, doesn't know better, takes communion, has a real encounter with the Lord, and comes to, to Christian faith. I'm fine with that on the side of the random pagan who doesn't know better. That's great if the Lord draws them in that way. But my the objection would be, I think, the on the the side of the um, the pastor who does not want to admit to their own disciplinary responsibility, just refusing to do either the disciplining of the Christian community or the invitation to the pagan community to become a part of the Christian community. Yeah, it's just a, a reflection of the of the enormous tragedy in the Lutheran tradition, which once was whose glory once was its theology, and now you have. Uh, pastors who are anti-theological and celebrate being anti-theological as radical grace or radical inclusiveness or something like that. I think I agree with you because it's just another um, misappropriation of the Lord's Supper. When I turn it into the supper of my denomination, no other's welcome. The Lord's, the prerequisite to admission to the Lord's Supper is baptism. If you recognize baptism, uh, uh, then you must recognize anyone who's so baptized who approaches the Lord's table as a brother or sister in Christ who was invited by Christ himself. Uh, it's his supper, not my supper or our supper. And the disciplining has to do with respecting the identity of the supper as the Lord's, which includes a, a, a word against my appropriation of the supper as my denominational identity marker or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will make this argument only weekly, but I, I think it has to be made that I suppose the idea would be behind the confessional division of the table is that it is the form of discipline. Like, well, you claim to be a Christian and you have received the grace of baptism, but you are not living in accord with it because the ideas you hold theologically, ethically, or whatever are not the Lord's. And therefore you have put yourself outside of the, uh, the worthiness to approach the table. I think that would be the, the basic argument. Right, and the, actually the Reformers made a very fine distinction, distinction here. They said the ban, excommunication, exclusion from communion for the baptized who are uh, sinning, is not 
ever a matter of the secret sins of the heart. Uh, we can't judge the sins of the heart. We don't have the sight, the insight, or the wisdom, or the goodness ourselves to judge what's motivating people. We can only judge behavior that's outward and visible. And it's when the behavior becomes destructive of the community. It's when the behavior becomes a scandal that, like Paul argued, argued hurts the weak in faith. That's when the band should, the pastors should exercise church discipline, not excluding uh, Christians uh, outside of his or her denomination but excluding Christians whose open manifest hypocrisy is damaging uh, the, uh, the community by their scandalous behavior, something like that. Have you, have you ever known a pastor to do that in your lifetime? I, oh, I've done it. Have you? Yeah. Wow. Do you want to tell us anything about that? Yeah, years ago, I'll just tell a very simple uh, story, but it's not, many pastors I'm sure have had experiences like this, at least good ones. Uh, I had brought a couple into the church uh, and uh, actually uh, performed their wedding and baptized their first child. And uh, they had become active in the church and I was very happy about them. I liked them. And some time passed and I noticed their attendance was becoming infrequent. And then one day she calls me on the phone in tears saying that her husband was having an affair. And I was really shocked and hurt by this because um, uh, I had been rather deeply involved with this couple and instructed them and confirmed them and so forth. What I did was I just said, okay, um, I hopped in the car and drove down to the place where this guy works. And I walked in there. He was at the counter. And he greeted me and smiled. And I said, you, with me, behind the building, right now. <laughs> Bring your dueling pistol. Uh, of course, I didn't mean to threaten him physically at all. I just meant I, want to, I'm, I need yeah, yeah. a private place to talk to you and confront you with this. And um, I think in the long run, all that worked out. But that's an example of what I think a pastor's responsibility is to call a man who's cheating on his wife and destroying her weak and uh, immature Christian faith by his bad behavior, let alone abusing this other woman, uh, giving her false hopes and things like that. Right. But was I'm just was that specifically tied to you are not welcome at the Lord's Supper till you clean up your act? I mean, was that Well, they were he was he was already guilty enough that he was withholding himself from the Lord's Supper. I mean, I that seems to me much more common now is that it's people just opt out of church because I mean, in the reformers time there was probably well, there was no internet, so people had nothing to do on Sunday mornings anyway. Of course, but, but I, and I think that's right and I think obviously people just opt out. But I think a lot of pastors don't confront the people who opt out. They just say, well, they're not interested. They must have found something else. And they have, feel no responsibility for them. They don't go and say, what's going on? What, you know, they don't, they're not pastors. They're not seeking after the sheep that's gone astray. That, that really uh, bothers me a lot, I guess. Um, yeah. 
I, I think it's really hard. I mean, this is speaking as a, a, a newly rebooted pastor here. It's actually really hard in our highly secularized societies to figure out exactly what your relationship is to people as the pastor or their pastor. Uh, we'll take that up in a future episode. But yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. But let's just, since we're talking about who, who is and isn't invited to the table and we've alluded to confessional things. I mean, so you're talking specifically about cases of, you know, open and grievous sin that scandalized the, com- the community and what that implies for um, for baptism or commu- reception of communion. And I would just say that it's important to note that just because you're baptized does not automatically mean you get communion because there has always been an understanding in the church that people living in states of open and grievous sin or in defiant unbelief are not invited to the Lord's Supper even though they're baptized. Of course, they should be called back by their pastors in the community. But in terms of the, the confessional thing, of course, this has been a, an obvious sore point in ecumenism low these many years of who is and isn't um, permitted at the table. Um, and if I can tell one of my little anecdotes, years and years ago when I was working at um, First Things, there was a, a, a gala lecture and dinner for Oliver O'Donovan, who is an, an Anglican theologian, does a lot of um, like uh, political theory kind of stuff. And um, afterwards at the, <laughs> at the dinner, um, RJN, Richard John Newhouse, uh, my boss, editor of, of uh, First Things, was relaxing with one of his notoriously stinky cigars and was uh, and several brandies. And um, finally just said baldly to Oliver O'Donovan, really now, Oliver, <laughs> how can you continue to affiliate with the Church of England um, in that contemptuous way he had? Because, of course, you know, the Catholic Church was the only place to be and, you know, went on at some time at how embarrassing and theologically thin it was and, you know, not Catholic. And um, and I remember Oliver O'Donovan took it with a level of sang- sanguinity that I uh, certainly lacked at the time and said, and said, Dear Richard, I believe that when I approach Judgment Day, and the Lord asks me why I kept somebody away from the Lord's Supper who was baptized and his child, I would have nothing to say. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was his, his only response. It was simply like, I could not be a part of a church that turns away the baptized. And that is one of the only times I ever saw RJN shut down and change the subject. It was quite impressive. <laughs> That's a good one, Sarah. For all that, I don't really want to rail particularly on on the Catholic Church or Orthodox or other churches that that exclude um, simply because I'm really tired of the word exclude as being like the only evil verb in existence. There there is a a reason to it, a logic to it that I think is not to be dismissed lightly. On the other hand, I have to say, I, I do tend more in the direction of saying that the, any baptized person who approaches in faith, it is the Lord's table, um, but not because of a, a primarily an exclusion or inclusion rhetoric. Well, that that's right. I, I mean, the kind of exclusion that you're objecting to is when a, a denomination appropriates the Lord's Supper as its own property rather than administers the Lord's Supper as the Lord's gift to his baptized people. And I think that's that's the distinction we're kind of uh, trying to drive at here. Yeah, well, I mean, it, the underlying problem, I think, is the ecclesiology, which says, we regret to inform you that we are the only true church. <laughs> and right, I exactly. mean, even, yeah. even though... 
the Catholic Church came a tremendously far away in in Vatican II by at, being able to acknowledge the Orthodox Church as truly church. And then all of the Protestants were kind of like, well, on a case-by-case basis, but we can at least say there are ecclesial elements and that the Holy Spirit has not refrained from using them as a means of salvation. So it kind of left this um, murky ecclesiological space that has not been clarified. And I mean, that's why there have been so many bilateral dialogues trying to sort that out. But I think the only coherent way you can make the argument is to say, I'm really sorry, but we're the only true church. Therefore, you're not part of the church. Therefore, you can't have the Lord's Supper. In the case of the Catholic Church, you know, it's slightly more believable than it is in a, you know, a denomination of, you know, 30,000 members um, that exists in one part of the world. But I'm not sure size is the ultimate argument one way or another. Yeah, right. Okay, well, let's move on to other issues. And, uh... Okay, well, so we have spent the whole time really talking about Eucharistic discipline. So let me suggest that we round out by talking about um, infant communion. And then maybe next time we were going to go on to another topic, but maybe next time we should actually talk about what the Lord's Supper is. <laughs> We've never actually gotten to the substance of the doctrinal issues. Right. What do you think? Yeah, I was trying to say that, and then we the conversation took us in another direction. How is it that the Lord's Supper for Paul is so qualitatively other than the sacrifices in the pagan temples? Well, clearly, the agent in the sacrifice is the person who brings the offering and the priest who makes the offering and the recipient uh, in the action is God uh, or the gods or the particular deity that's being uh, 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 bargained with. And I'm using the word bargained with because that's what's going on. It's an economic transaction. One offers to the gods in order to get back uh, do ut Des in Latin, I give in order that you give. Do ut des. And that is the liturgical logic of the, of, of the pagan sacrifices, which Paul says is all a fraud, because in fact what's going on is you're being enthralled by demons. Uh, and the real target of, of the critique then is this liturgical and idolatrous logic that God is there to be bargained with. And if you give God the right things, if you push the right buttons, God will give you back blessings and something like that. Paul wants to say that the Lord's Supper is categorically different because here the agent is not the human being or the priest. Here the agent is Christ. And it is Christ as a priest who offers, not to God, but from God to his people. The logic is inverted. It's reversed. Here, Christ gives himself uh, uh, to the benefit, to the blessing of his recipients. And so the human role is not that of an offerer, but as a recipient of of a divine self-offer. Now we can go on and say, but that's fundamentally how the Christian Eucharist or the uh, uh, Christian Lord's Supper is fundamentally different 
from the sacrificial rites of the pagans. Now, there's a lot, we can get into a lot of theology here that Christ's self-sacrifice was a once-and-for-all atonement, doesn't need to be repeated merely in the Lord's Supper to be represented. Uh, we can talk about uh, how this self-presentation of Christ in his body and blood for us and for our salvation uh, it affects a union with Christ. And so that uh, in reflex of that and always, all, always only in reflex of that, there is also in union with Christ a self-offering of praise and thanksgiving intimately bound up with receiving that precious gift. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> so I think that means that we've um, run out of time for now, and but we didn't get anywhere near to all the stuff we were going to talk about today. So let's continue this with another one. Okay, so next time on the show, more on Holy Communion, delving into some further disciplinary questions, worship questions, and of course, doctrine, our favorites. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.